Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 10. Speaking this morning primarily on the second woe, we, we introduced ourselves to the second woe, the sixth trumpet last week. We kind of left off, in a manner of speaking, in the middle of that second woe. Recall in Revelation 9, the fifth angel sounded, the trumpet, the angel of the bottomless pit, the bottomless pit was opened, uh, locust-like creatures came out of that bottomless pit, and uh, the angel of the bottomless pit, uh, one named Abaddon in the Hebrew, Apollyon in the Greek, um, led them. They were allowed to torment men for five months. This was called the first woe, which is now past. In Revelation 9, verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and this initiated the sixth trumpet judgment and what we call the second woe. At this point, four angels were loosed, which were bound in the river Euphrates, and they lead an army of what the Bible says is 200,000 or 200 million strong to destroy a third part of men. To this point then, a full one half of the per earth's population has been destroyed in what we would perhaps deem to be the first three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Again, the, the time frame on this, uh, we are walking through why it is we've established the time frame that we have. Next week, as we dig into Daniel a little bit, you'll perhaps see a little bit more of why we believe the time frame that we do. However, there is wiggle room here. There, is, there are a great number of unknowns as to the timetable, but that's generally what we would believe, uh, is that this is all taking place and, and coming up to the first three and a half year or the midpoint of the tribulation. So, uh, in response to this, we'll find uh, that the world shakes, their fist at God, refuses to repent, and that's where we ended last week. The Bible said at the end of Revelation 9, the rest of the men which were not killed by the plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass. And we had mentioned, by way of application, that that is not us, right? That we are those who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be those who are not the worshipers of idols and the, the, those that are not the worshipers of devils and, and uh, gold and silver and brass and stone and wood uh, who are not defined by murders and sorceries and fornication and theft. Well, we step into chapter 10 today. The second woe continues Almost all of the events within Revelation 10 and 11 describe events that are yet a part of the sixth trumpet. We'll see it uh, in verse 15 of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounds. We will not be digging into that. We'll stop in verse 14 of chapter 11 this morning. Beginning in chapter 10, the character of the time of judgment, as we've read about it in Revelation, changes. Here we have seen what we would deem to be a general chronology of events. That chronology will continue. However, we're also going to see some more generalized observations. Things get a little more topical, though I think we're still probably within that, that sixth trumpet span and, and, and there's no reason to step outside of that chronology. We are going to begin to look at topics of John looking at one thing and observing it and seeing how it functions, then another thing and observing it and seeing how it functions. So while we're all in the general timetable, from chapter to chapter, where we don't see any statement of time, we might be looking at events that are happening at the same time, contiguously, 
while John is looking at them one at a time or considering them one at a time, I think you'll understand a little bit of what we mean as we walk through the next several weeks. We begin in Revelation 10, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. So I mentioned already we don't fully know the chronology of these events. John is seeing things, and with it he sees this. Another mighty angel, he says, different from the angel that had the key to the bottomless pit, different from the angels who had the trumpets, those seven angels, different from the four angels that were bound in the river Euphrates, different from the angel that was within the bottomless pit. This is another angel. And he describes this angel as clothed in a cloud. The idea here means that he was generally obscured. He didn't see the whole body of the angel because he was obscured by a cloud. He also sees a rainbow upon his head, his face as the sun, his feet as pillars of fire. Now, this is a somewhat um, common or reminiscent description. Recall when, um, when John saw the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, or if we go to the visions in Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, there are a lot of similarities. The feet as, as flaming fire, speaking of judgment, right? That heated metal or that heated brass. Uh, we see that here. We see the rainbow. Recall when John saw the throne in heaven, when he was taken up into heaven in, in Revelation chapter 4, and he saw the throne there, that above the throne was a rainbow of emerald. And we see a similar idea there. However, that being said, while some do believe that this is Christ, uh, we have no reason to believe that this is Christ per se. Uh, we have seen Christ as the lamb that was slain in the heavens. And uh, there's not enough information here, but the fact that he simply calls him a mighty angel, not the angel of the Lord, which might be more indicative of Christ, or connect him in any way to the lamb that was slain, leads us to believe that this is a different angel, though he does have some of these similar characteristics. He is bright, he is beautiful, he is glorious, he is mighty. And in his hand, the Bible says, John says in his vision, was a little book. Now, we might presume this to be a scroll, similar to the one that had the seven seals. Recall that we've been walking through, we're at the six, the, the trumpets now, but uh, when we walk through the seven seals, we recognize that they were kind of perhaps wax seals on a scroll, and each one was broken, and with each one came some judgment until they were all opened, at which point the contents of the book could be opened. And here, this angel has a little book opened. We don't see that it's the book that was opened by the seven seals. John does not make that connection. Perhaps it is, perhaps it's not. This one is already open, however. And this angel sets his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. We'll perhaps understand a little bit more about what this means as we walk through the book. There's debate as to what, what the sea and the earth are here. The simplest explanation if we want a simple explanation, is that by placing one foot on the sea and one foot upon the earth, the angel is, as it were, claiming dominance over all of the earth. The earth is made up of land and of water, right? So having one foot on the sea, one foot on the land um, would be indicative of that. However, we're going to come to a point later on in the book of, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ where John's going to see visions of, of beasts uh, who we would relate to either cultures and civilizations or to individuals. And John says, I will see, he, I saw this 
beast coming out of the sea. And I saw this beast coming out of the land. And so as he is seeing things coming out of the sea and out of the land, that has led people to think, okay, maybe there's more, there's something more symbolic or metaphorical about the sea and the land. And as we put all the pieces together, one of the most reasonable theories about this is that the sea oftentimes signifies the Gentile world and land signifies Israel. And uh, so we'll draw from that and, and as we walk through various elements. In this case, it would not change the meaning too much. He's got one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. If those do represent Israel and the Gentile world, it would still, of course, comprise the whole world. It would just emphasize more cultures rather than, say, landmass. It emphasized kingdoms rather than just topography. So he places his feet, one on the sea, one on the land. Continuing in verses 3 and 4. And cried with a loud voice. This is the angel crying, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So this angel cries with a loud voice. John likens it to the roaring of a lion. Very loud, very uh, um, definitive. And then perhaps as an echo or a reverberation, seven thunders replied, John says. The, of course, the idea of seven, that should make us perk our ears. Seven is a, a number that is often metaphorical, meaning complete, meaning it's the divine number of perfection or completion. So the idea perhaps simply being that there was a very loud reply um, coming back. And these thunders, what they uttered when they replied to the angel was audible. John could understand it. So John says, I was about to write what they said. And as I was about to write what these thunders said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. This is not an uncommon thing in prophecy. If you go back to the prophecies in Daniel and to Ezekiel, there are times where God tells them, seal up the vision until the time of the end. The idea being what God is saying there is, the peop- is that people will not understand this prophecy until it until it comes to pass or until it's near its end. And so there are times where prophecies are sealed up, where God says, I am not going to give you enough information to understand this prophecy or to understand what you're reading or to understand what's being said. In this case, he doesn't even allow us to know what was said. He says, seal up the voice, seal up the things which were uttered. Do not write them down. And this is important to us. This is, there's a principle here that we need to draw out, important for a couple of reasons. First, it reminds us of the inspired nature of the Bible. That as John is about to write something, the heavens know exactly what he's writing. And if he's going to write something that God says, I don't want written, he doesn't get to write it. It reminds us that the Word of God is inspired, that all Scripture is given, God-breathed, given by inspiration of God, that holy men wrote as they were born along by God. And this is another great proof of that. We actually, it's one of the, the, the times where we see it in action, where we see John writing and, the, the, and God or the heavens, something in the heavens saying, don't write that. Second though, and this is very important, always remember that what we have in the word of God is what God has chosen to tell us. 
And he hasn't chosen to tell us everything. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that God has not chosen to tell us everything. People spend hundreds, even thousands of hours studying Bible topics. And especially topics as they relate to two things, creation and the end times. Talk about all the things that happened prior to the flood, the civilizations, all that's really fascinating. What was it like? The intelligence, all of those things. And then you think about what's going to happen one day. And they have thousands and thousands of pages written and podcasts and movies and documentaries and so much about the end times. And there's a lot of controversy around these topics. And a lot of the controversy around these topics are things which God has not seen fit to reveal to us. And we all kind of stake our claim and put our flag down somewhere and say, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it has to be. When in fact, God hasn't revealed it. And then we get frustrated and we say, well, why hasn't he revealed it? Well, maybe because he doesn't want us to know. And while study is never a bad thing, may I encourage you to never allow study to get so deep, to go so far beyond the clear teachings of Scripture that it causes you to lose focus upon what is actually written. A lot of times we as Christians and men in general will spend so much time trying to read between the lines that we forget to read the lines themselves. We spend so much time on the smaller topics, the things that God has given so little on, because He's given so little, which means we have to dig, right? That we forget to take the things that He's given to us just simply and to consume those. In other words, there's a lot that's up in the air about the end times. But there's not, that's up, there's not nearly as much up in the air about Jesus' command to love your enemy, to pray for them that would despitefully use you, to bless them that curse you. And yet, how many more hours might we spend meditating upon the things that we don't know than we will meditating upon how to perform the things that we do know. It's important that we don't allow the smaller matters, the things that God has not told us, the things which he has seen fit not to provide, to overshadow in our hearts and in our priorities the things which God has seen fit to provide for us. And indeed, if we would stay there, the church would be much more unified. Not to say we wouldn't have our conflicts but God's given us an, an awful lot within the pages, in black and white, for us to focus on. And I think we see a little bit of that here, a little bit of insight into this reality here, that God has chosen not to reveal some things to us. And that's okay. That's okay. We'll know them one day. And that should be enough for us. This idea will come up again as we, uh, we step into Daniel next week. Continuing in verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time 
no longer. So the angel standing upon the sea. Once again, we see here a, a good indication that this is not Christ because he is swearing by God instead of swearing by himself here. And he swears by God, the one that lives forever, the one that creates all things in heaven and earth, that time is about to end, that time is no longer, that the, horse, the course of history is coming to its conclusion in these days, that the record of time, beginning for us at the, really the fall, deteriorating through the curse of Adam and sin, is about to come to an end, is about to come to its conclusion. Verses 7 and 8. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, and he hath declared to his servants, the, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, saying, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. So this mighty angel looks forward to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. That's going to happen in Revelation 11, verse 15. And as he looks forward to that sounding, he says that in the days of that sounding, when the trumpet begins to sound, and remember what we looked at last week, the sounding of the seventh trumpet will be the initiation of the seven vials. And the, the, the initiation of the seven vials is the end. This is, these are the final subset of judgments of God. And as that takes place, the angel says, this is when the mystery of God will be finished. We've talked about the concept of a mystery, something unrevealed before a certain point. This statement lightly connects to the way in which um, John, or the thing in which John was not allowed to write. It's possible that we could try to draw one of the mysteries that has been revealed in Scripture, uh, that the Gentiles should be co-heirs with, the, with Israel, or whatever the case may be. But most likely, this mystery that is finished is what the seven, uh, the seven thunders uttered here. And what they uttered is about to be completed. Somehow, this is what we do know, History is going to come to its conclusion, as the prophets have declared. The prophets have given us glimpses. They've talked about the end times. We read about it in Joel a few weeks ago. We've read about it in Zechariah. We'll read about it next week in Daniel. We'll read about it in Ezekiel, as we get to Ezekiel a little bit later in the series. All of these things coming to pass. They've alluded to it. They've given us glimpses of it. We've seen flashes of it. It's like we've seen individual pictures. But this, at, at, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, this is initiating the end of the end. The mystery of God will be revealed, and it will be finished. So the voice from heaven speaks unto John, and he commands him to take this little book, which is open in the hand of the angels, and we'll see what he tells him to do with it in verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, and, when, and I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. We're going to talk about this more in our application. But John asks the angel for the book. The angel tells him. He gives him the book and he says, eat the book. And he tells him what's going to happen. He, he emphasizes it's going to be bitter in his belly, though it will be sweet in his mouth. So John takes it, he eats it, and it is exactly this. It is sweet in his mouth, and then after he swallows it, it's bitter in his belly. We spoke about this in our overview as well. The idea here is that the mystery of the end of the world, the things that are taking place at the end of the world, these judgments that are written upon these books, to those who love God, they are sweet in our mouths, aren't they? 
They are sweet in our mouths. They are our blessed hope in, in a manner of speaking. We read these things and we find in them vindication. We find in them the vindication of our trials, the vindication of our sacrifices. And we are not a suffering church at Legacy Baptist Church, nor by and large are we a suffering church in the United States of America. But uh, imagine with, with me, if you would, for a moment, we translate ourselves over to Syria this morning or over to Egypt this morning, and you are reading about the end of the world and the judgments of the end of the world as you are hiding, hoping that the Muslim Brotherhood does not find you, burn your houses down, and sell your children into slavery. And if, if you're there on a Sunday morning, then the promises of judgment might even taste a little bit sweeter in your mouth, wouldn't they? The fact that as you see these evil people, you know that one day those evil people will, will, will get what has been coming to them. <clears throat> we read in the end of the book and we find out God wins. That gives us hope for the future. That even gives us hope to keep going. It allows us to look at the evil that exists around us in the world and say, I've seen the end and you are going to lose. It allows us to see all of the agendas of evil people and the things that, are, that, that they're attempting to do and the way that they're trying to break down morality and truth and get rid of the Bible and society. And, and you say, okay, you're doing that, but there's coming a day when you will lose. And this is, this is sweet. This is a, a sweet thing. This is vindication. So many of the Psalms, David is writing about vindication, his hope and his expectation that God will vindicate him, that God will, will cause his enemies to be barren and will break their teeth and will cause them to fall into pits and all of these things. And, and these are very natural feelings, in a manner of speaking, for those who are suffering in this life in order to receive the, the joys of the life that is to come. But at the same time, we are reminded that as John ate this book, it was sweet in his mouth, but then it was, as it digested, can we put it that way? There was a bitterness there. To this point, half of the earth's population is destroyed in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't know how many that will be at that particular time in history, but we're already around 8 billion people on the earth a lot of dead people. The loss of so much life. And try to always connect the loss of life with eternity. The loss of so much life is so many of those souls in eternity. And for most, perhaps, an eternity without God. And that should fill our bellies with bitterness. Paul gives us an example of this in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The nation of Israel had been very cruel to Paul. He'd been persecuted by them. They had stripped him of all of the blessings which he had had. They had rejected him. They had refused to believe. They are those upon whom God will avenge Paul one day. And yet as Paul thinks upon his nation, he still says, I could wish myself accursed from Christ if only they would be saved. He saw the bitterness that is the life without Christ. He saw the bitterness that is an eternity without Christ. And he says, and, and, and I believe this is what he's saying here, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. And so there's a bitterness there. While judgment might be sweet in Paul's mouth, it was bitter in his belly. 
We finish chapter 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 10 and verse 11. Bible says, And he said unto me, that being the angel unto John, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So John, having seen these things, having eaten the book that was filled with the judgments of God, having tasted it, having recognized it to be sweet in his mouth but bitter in his belly, uh, feeling the full weight of the thrust of the judgments of God and the end of the world, the angel says to John, you're going to have to testify before many. And indeed, he is still testifying to many peoples and nations and tongues and kings through the word of God today. Continuing in chapter 11, the Bible says in verses 1 and 2, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So the angel standing over the sea and the earth continues to speak to John. Right? We're still in the same framework, the same context. And he gives John a reed like a rod. This was effectively, uh, we might call it a yardstick. It was a measuring stick. And John receives this measuring stick intended to accurately measure something. And John was told to measure the temple of God, including the altar and those that worship within the altar. But he was explicitly told not to measure the court outside of the temple, which God says, or this angel says, was given to the Gentiles along with the city of Jerusalem for 42 months. This is the first time in the revelation of Jesus Christ that we see the timetable that we have been speaking of since the beginning of our study. Right? We've talked about Daniel 72 we or 70 weeks. We've talked about the 70th week being split in half. We've talked about the elements of of why we believe that these 70 weeks are actually um, uh, uh, 70 sets of seven years. And so the 70 weeks would be a, a set of 490 years. That the 69th week, after which Messiah is cut off, is 483 of those years. That the 70th week is seven years. And that the midpoint of that 70th week is the three and a half year point. And now we find 42 months, which 42 months, of course, 12 months in a year, 36 months is three years, 42 months is three and one half years. And so we find this three and one half year mark in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to begin to put together next week as we go back and we study some of Daniel. So we have a 42 month, a three and a half year period where the Gentiles have the city where John is told not to measure the, the, anything but the temple itself because the court of the Gentiles and the city of Jerusalem has been trodden down, given to be trodden by the Gentiles for 40 and two months. Now the question then, if we link this to Daniel's 70, 70th week, is which 42 months? Is it the first half? Is it the second half? Or is it in between? And if it's in between, then why did God break 70th week into a one half and a second half? In, the, uh, in Daniel. So generally speaking, most people think that this is either the first half or the second half. If it's the first half, then most likely what happened here is that when Antichrist made the covenant with many for one week, we'll read about that in Daniel again next week, he, he, he did a deal. And he told Israel, you can have the temple if the Gentiles can have the city. Right now, Israel has the city, but they don't have the Temple Mount. There'll be a flop. That's if the first 42 months are being measured here. But we would generally believe this to be the second 42 months, wherein most likely what happens is 
Israel has Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation, at the, of the 70th week, Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation and strips from Israel the rights to the city. There's questions, however, because there's a little bit of a breakdown there since Antichrist will kind of claim the, the temple as well, right, at that time, it would seem. So there are some question marks about this as to which one is in effect. However, the idea that we're talking about is we see mentioned the court which is given to the Gentiles and then the holy city. If we look at Herod's temple, the temple that was built in Herod's day, the temple that would have been in existence in operation in Jesus' day, the one that was destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt since, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, were not allowed into the temple complex proper. There was within the complex, the court, and then outside of that, the court of the women. And then outside of that was a court for the Gentiles. This is the closest that the Gentile world could come to the temple. If they wanted to worship God, they would only be able to go into the court of the Gentiles, uh, surrounded by Solomon's porch. So there was a great deal of commerce and whatnot being done there. But they would only be able to go into the court of the Gentiles. So if we translate this into what John is supposed to measure, God says, measure the inner court, but don't measure the Gentiles nor the city itself. And that's what we are seeing here. Gives us some insight into the, the, what might be happening in those last days. Uh, first, you know, as I mentioned, it's possible Antichrist makes a deal and swaps them. Second, just that um, the city gets overrun in that second half, in the second 42 months. Either way, this is kind of the idea. So John measures this temple. We don't get those measurements. We continue in verses 3 and 4. God says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So in the context of this time, when the temple seems to be in the hands of Israel, but the city is not, we're introduced to two witnesses. And we would believe that these two witnesses, uh, again, they, they are going to minister for one thousand two hundred and 60 days. Three score, a score is 20, three score would be 60, 1,260 days. Prophetically, every month is a 30-day month. So if we divide 1,260 by 30, we get 42, 42 months. So if we link these two prophecies together, and we see that the time that the witnesses are, are prophesying is the same time that the uh, temple is in the hands of Israel, but the city is trodden by the Gentiles, then most likely we are talking about the first 42 months of the 70th week of Daniel. These two witnesses, they're called, are said to be two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So they minister for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. They're said to be clothed in sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning and sorrow. We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. And they are called the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. This is a very significant title. And just as it is, it's not all that clear. But if we go back into the Old Testament, we find a very strong link here to prophetic revelation in this title, the two olive trees the two candlesticks standing before 
the God of the earth. I'm going to read to you an entire chapter of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, for context, and then we'll talk about it. The Bible says in Zechariah 4, And the angel that talked with me came again and walked me, and waked me, excuse me, and as a man that is wakened out of sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And the two and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and another upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet of the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees? upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these things be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord. Of the whole earth. So we're jumping into major context here in Zechariah, and I apologize for that. I, 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 maybe I should just stop and teach through Zechariah, but I'm not going to do that this time around. In chapter 3, Zechariah saw a vision of the high priest Joshua, who was the priest at the time of the rebuilding of the temple. This is after the 70 years of captivity. And as he saw this vision, he saw Joshua clothed in filthy garments, standing by an angel. And the angel commands that the filthy garments be removed from him and that uh, they give him clean garments, and then they put a miter, like a crown, upon his head and, uh, as a king. And this is a prophetic vision of the Lord. As a matter of fact, Jesus' name, the name Jesus in the Greek, is in Hebrew, Joshua. Yahashua. Yeshua, right? And so Jesus' name was actually Joshua, so we see a very tight, close link here to this idea of the prophet also becoming the king. And this vision, Joshua is given this crown, he's given these change of raiments, and, excuse me, and then this leads into this promise that one day there will be a servant of the Lord who will be prophet, priest, and king, of course, speaking of Jesus. This, this one is called the branch, and he is Jesus. And this leads to the concept of Zechariah 4. The vision of Zechariah 4, what we see, what Zechariah sees is two olive trees and branches coming from these two olive trees, one on the right hand and one on the left hand of a candlestick. These olives feed through golden pipes. They feed golden oil, olive oil, right, from the tree directly into a basin. And then this basin has seven pipes and each one of these 
these pipes feeds that oil from that single unified basin into the individual candles. And by this, the candles would remain lit. If you've ever seen an oil lamp, right? You fill the lamp with oil, then you, you light the wick, and then the oil keeps that lamp um, burning. As long as there's oil, the lamp will continue to burn, and then you refill the oil, and the lamp can continue to burn. And this is how the, the, the golden candlestick in the temple was lit. It was lit with oil. It, the oil was the fuel that kept the candles burning. So this is what he sees here, and he sees a direct pipeline between these two olive branches and this basin, and then a direct pipeline between this basin and these candles, so that effectively the idea is that these candles will never be extinguished because they don't have to be refilled. They are constantly being filled filled with oil through the basin and these two olive branches coming from these two olive trees. The specific context of this declaration in Zechariah 4 is that the building of the temple of God would be completed. This was a, a big question mark in that day because the people had stopped the work. And Zechariah was called, among uh, other prophets, to call the people back to work. And God is saying that this will get done. The work of God will be done. That God had raised Zechariah up as a prophet in order to compel the people to return uh, and, and to build this temple. The people came back zealous, but they soon got caught up in life. They stopped building the temple. God says, however, that by the power of His Spirit, between Zerubbabel and Joshua, Joshua being the high priest, Zerubbabel being the one who had been commissioned to build this temple, the temple would get done. And so when Zechariah asks, who are these olive trees? God, uh, the angel says they're the two anointed ones. And these two anointed ones in that day, the ones that God had commissioned to fulfill the work of the Lord for Israel, were Joshua and Zerubbabel. Those were the two olive trees in that day. However, what we really need to bring from this context is simply that statement that the two olive trees are God's anointed ones. The two olive trees are God's anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. They are those that God has chosen and commissioned to do His work, to bring about His will in Israel. These two witnesses are described almost verbatim to what is said in Zechariah 4 that they are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The point of this is to show that like Joshua and Zerubbabel in the days after the captivity, these two witnesses would be used by God to bring about God's will, given, empowered by the Spirit of God Himself to bring about God's will in this time to do the work that God has chosen. And once again, may I just call your mind to the fact that we are, we are pulling major imagery from Old Testament prophecy as it relates to Israel, right? And so there's very little reason for us to assume that God is not dealing, that, that these two witnesses do not directly relate to Israel and the ministry of God toward His people in this time. And the two witnesses, once again, imagine you're an Old Testament Jewish believer. You believe the Torah. You have read the Torah You've read the prophets. And then these two witnesses show up on the scene. And you're connecting it to Zechariah 4. Just as the, the sixth seal, you would connect, they would connect it so directly to Joel chapter 2. We're seeing fulfillment of prophecy so that God can call His people and say to His people, this is, this is me. Christ is Messiah. So what about their ministry, their 42-month ministry? 
Verses 5 and 6. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So during the extent of their ministry, any man who attempts to hurt them while they are witnessing of the Lord through the power of the Spirit will be consumed with fire and will be killed. They will have the power to do miracles similar to that in the days of Moses, turning water to blood, smiting the earth with plagues. And the Bible says that they will often use these powers, which means they are going to torment the earth. The earth is not going to like these people as they prophesy of the Lord, as they proclaim the word of the Lord. Those that seek to come against them will be resisted, will be destroyed. Their lands will be plagued. Their waters will be turned to blood. Uh, they're not, the world is not going to like these people. Continuing in verses 7 and 8. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So the end of their, 70, uh, their 42 months, their 42 month testimony goes by. At the end of the 42 months, and again, this is connected with the seventh seal, right? Or tr trumpet. The sixth trumpet, excuse me. Get all my numbers right. This is, this is within the span of the sixth trumpet, which is one of the reasons why we believe the sixth trumpet corresponds at least to some degree with the midpoint of the tribulation. Because this is happening, and at least at this point, they had had a ministry of 42 months. 42 months is a marker that connects us to the 70th week of Daniel. There's some inference here, isn't there? Maybe their 42 months started 40 months before the, the, the 70th week of Daniel. We don't know that, but it's reasonable to assume interpretively that when we have 42 months, which is three and a half years, 1,260 days, and when we see, we go to Daniel and we see a three and a half year time period and then another three and a half years, it's reasonable to assume these things, right? Which is one of the reasons why we assume that we are around the midpoint of the tribulation here. So these two are killed by the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, the one that had been leading these demonic hordes. And all of a sudden, the world's going to kind of like them, I guess. We've not been fully introduced to this beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. We'll do so more in chapter 13. It is curious that John speaks of it with so much familiarity, maybe because of the familiarity we should have with the beast from Daniel. But it is apparent um, that we're dealing with a great power. We'll talk about that more as we get into Daniel and as we get into Revelation 13. So the bottomless pit, remember, was not open till the sixth seal. To this end, the beast of the bottomless pit, which may not be the angel of the bottomless pit, by the way, I mentioned that he led the angel hordes, but that, again, is an inference, and it may not be the way it is. Many people believe the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit is Antichrist, and there's reason to believe that. If so, Antichrist does not come on the scene in any major way until the opening of the sixth seal. We'll talk about some of that in the weeks to come. I'm going to skip a little bit here for the sake of time and jump ahead. Let's continue in verses 9 and 10. And they of the, of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. That would be of the two witnesses. 
and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. So the Bible says that no one will touch their bodies. This beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will destroy them and then no one will touch their bodies. They'll, and they were destroyed in the city. I'm sorry, I brushed over something important there. In the city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. So this is Jerusalem, right? They're in Jerusalem where the Lord was crucified, which spiritually is a city of apostasy in this day called Sodom, called Egypt. And on this day, they will be killed by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit and their bodies will just lie there in the street and no one will touch them. No one will bury them. And instead, they'll effectively make a holiday. They'll proclaim a holiday and they'll give each other gifts and they'll celebrate. The whole world will celebrate that these two witnesses are dead because they were the enemies of the people because... The prophets that tormented them are now destroyed. The story doesn't end there, however. Verses 11 through 13. And the tenth part of the city fell. I went one slide too. There we go. That's where I want. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. That would be the witnesses. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted. And gave glory to the God of heaven. So the people are celebrating, right? After three and a half days, these two witnesses have been lying dead in the street for three and a half days. People are celebrating and giving them gifts. These two witnesses stand up upon their feet. And of course, the people are horrified and terrified. And then a voice from heaven audibly calls them, come up hither, and they ascend into heaven. The world will glorify God in this, which is good. However, it will not change much as far as the mindset of the world. At the same time, the Bible says that there will be a great earthquake localized in Jerusalem. A tenth part of the city will fall. 7,000 will die. Many will be afraid. We're about to finish our exposition for today. As we do so, I'd like to just ask and answer this one question. We'll kind of answer it. Who are these two witnesses? Of course, we just talked about not getting too deep into that which God has not told us, right? So we're not going to make any heavy dogmatic claims here. But there are a couple of theories as to who, whom these two witnesses are. The question is, are they literal? Are they metaphorical? There are some that argue that the two witnesses are just metaphorical, that the two witnesses are either the church in Israel or that it's the Word of God, the Old and New Testaments. We would, of course, reject the church in Israel idea because we believe that the church has already been raptured. The Old and New Testament, as the two witnesses, wouldn't make a lot of sense from the idea of the, the two witnesses killing people and then ascending into heaven. So it seems most likely that we're talking about something literal here. And if it is literal, who are these two men? Two most viable theories in regard, if, if there's any way that we can piece it together, the two most viable theories is either that these are Moses and Elijah, or that this is Moses 
and, or excuse me, Elijah and Enoch. So the first theory is that these two men are Moses and Elijah. Recall that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, when he appeared there, transfigured before the, the uh, three apostles, uh, was there with Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah were intended to represent the law and the prophets. Now, Physically, we know that Elijah was taken out of this world. He was translated out of this world. No one knows where his physical body is. He was not buried. He did not die. He was translated in a chariot of fire out of this world. Moses, we talked about it in our singing this morning, uh, did die, didn't he? Right on the top of Mount Pisgah. However, in regard to his burial, verse, Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, tell us that he was buried in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. No man knows where he was buried. But the story doesn't end there. In the book of Enoch, which is not inspired, we read an account of Satan contending with Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. And while we would not give any credence to the book of Enoch in something such as that, Typically, what we find is that in Jude, verse 9, Jude tells us that this did indeed take place. That Michael the archangel contended with the devil, disputing over the body of Moses. And so the obvious question is, why is Moses' body important at all? And there's many reasons that we could give, but perhaps it is that God still has a plan for Moses' body. Perhaps he will be one of the two witnesses. And therefore, God wants Moses' body so that he can become one of the two witnesses in his body. Therefore, we have Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets. Reverse, right? Elijah would be the prophets. Moses would be the law. And thus, it would be these two tremendously important figures within Israel's history that are now testifying of the Lord in this in this fashion. The other theory is that uh, it's Elijah and Enoch. The reason why Elijah and Enoch are mentioned is because those are the only two men in the scriptures who did not die, right? Elijah was translated by the chariot of fire. Enoch was not, for the Lord took him. So Enoch was also translated, the Bible tells us, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this to judgment, with the exception of the final generation of the church, which will be raptured, people say, well, maybe Elijah and Enoch are the two, because those are the two men that have not seen death within the context of the Old Testament. Both are reasonable. Uh, Moses and Elijah make a little bit more sense to me personally, but uh, it could be either or, or it could be neither of those, and it could just be two other people that we do not know. Um, but those are the theories that are out there. Our text ends today with the end of the sixth trumpet. And remember, this is what keeps us grounded. We could say, well, we don't know when any of these events happen, and that's true, but we do know, based upon the fact that it began with the sixth trumpet, and now we see the second woe is passed, these things are happening within the, the second woe, within the sixth trumpet. So we have a general chronological time frame here, and I hope that we keep that in check. All right, very quickly, as we close this morning, let me give you a couple of points of application. Number one, remember the heart of God for this world. I spoke in our chapter summary. We spoke of it already this morning. I'm not going to belabor the point that this book of judgments was bitter in the belly of John. Remember God's love for the world. Don't lose sight 
of the fact that God desires us to reach the world. Don't lose sight of the fact that though this world may persecute you and dislike you and hate you and say all manner of evil against you for the Lord's sake, don't lose sight of the fact that they are loved of God. Don't lose sight of the fact that we are seeking to reach them. We want them saved. Don't lose sight of the fact that they are indeed our mission field. Don't lose sight of the fact that as Jesus hung on the cross, taking and bearing not just the physical brunt of evil, but the shame of the world, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus has called for us to love our enemies, to pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Don't lose sight of the fact that if we simply love them that love us, we are no better than anyone else. We are no different than anyone else. But God has called us to a divine love, which would likewise call us to love those who are our enemies. God's coming is not intended for us to be an excuse to sit back and just contemplate the world burning it is intended for us to be the, the drive whereby we go and we see a world one to Christ. I'm going to skip the scriptures I was going to share and go to our second point here. Remember the heart of God for his people as well. Reading about these two witnesses, seeing the statement in regard to them as a verbatim reflection of the prophecies in Zechariah chapter 4, It helps us remember how much God loves his people, that in this time of destruction and change, God is going to commit tremendous spiritual resources to reaching his people, the nation of Israel, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once again, I say this about the heart of God only to help us as we seek to align our heart with God's. This past summer, we had Brother Ross, missionary in Israel, with us. And he made a statement which I believe to be true. He said, those who love God and his word love the nation of Israel. Now this doesn't mean we love everything they do in a national context. This doesn't mean we support all of their geopolitical policies and decisions. That's not not what it means to love Israel. To love Israel does not mean that we turn a blind eye to anything wrong that they do. Because the nation of Israel, the people in Israel, they're by and large unbelievers. They're by and large pagans. And they live like unbelievers and pagans. But we support them in the Lord. Their right to exist. Acknowledge God's blessing upon them. Acknowledge their right to the land. Acknowledge God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Acknowledge that those who bless Israel are blessed that those who curse Israel are cursed. And on this point, allow me to clarify, because this is often kind of muddied. People go back to Genesis 12, 3. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And some take issue with this as a reason to support Israel. And, and, and in a manner of speaking, I do too. And the reason being, because Abraham also bore Ishmael, right? And Ishmael became the father of the Arab people today. To that end, they argue, many people argue, should we... Seek, uh, shouldn't we be seeking God's blessing in Abraham by blessing all of Abraham's seed? And the answer is obviously no. If we, uh, if we interpret this properly, we know that Ishmael was cast out, right? The bondwoman and her son was cast out. Isaac was the one, right, in whom the seed would be called. However, there is something to be said here 
for the ambiguity of this verse. But let me also point you to the blessing of Abraham's son Isaac upon Jacob. When Abraham, uh, when Abraham's son Isaac blessed Jacob, he said this in Genesis 27, 29. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's son bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. So all I'm trying to show here is that we can trace this blessing and cursing not just through Abraham, but through Isaac and unto Jacob. And Jacob, of course, became Israel and his children became the nation of Israel. Then Balaam, when he was prophesying in the spirit, in the days where Israel had come out of Egypt and they'd already become a nation, said this in Numbers chapter 24, verses 8 and 9. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion, who shall stir him? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. So now upon the nation of Israel itself, when they're in the wilderness, we see this exact same statement, that there's a blessing upon those that bless Israel, and there's a curse upon those who curse Israel. So it's not just about that one verse in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that people hang on to to say, those that bless Abraham will be blessed, and curse Abraham that will be cursed. We can trace it to Jacob. We can trace it to the nation of Israel. We can trace it through that lineage. Now, let's make this clear. A Jew, like any other person, if they do not come to God through Jesus Christ, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, will not get to God. They will not get to God. Israel is not, by, is not de facto saved. Israel is not de facto going to, to, to... Every person, every Jew will not de facto be in the kingdom of heaven. A Jew, like any other, who does not acknowledge that their sin has separated them from God, that the only way to God is a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of God, will end up burning in hell like any other person. If they do not believe, their place is in the lake of fire. So, this, this is not us saying that there's this get-out-of-jail-free card for them or anything of the sort. We simply recognize God's covenant with His people. And we recognize that that covenant is yet in effect, though the people have been set aside for a time. God's heart is for salvation. Our heart should be for salvation. God's heart is for His people. We too should desire peace for Jerusalem. And that's it. The second woe is past. The third is on its way. Next week we're going to take a side journey into Daniel. And we're going to learn about elements of Daniel and how it relates to that which we'll be studying next. Things are about to get very interesting as we talk about the woman that rides the beast and the beast and, and the, the a second beast and um, all sorts of mystery Babylon and all sorts of, uh, of things. Things are about to get pretty in, uh, interesting contextually, but uh, we need some Old Testament, some deeper Old Testament context first. So that's what we'll hit next week. If you take anything with you this week, and I know it's been somewhat intellectual, the whole series has to some degree, may I just encourage you to allow the heart of God for the lost, the heart of God for His people, to well up in you and to be your heart as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.